Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... Innocence Lost Before there was Jody Foster and Brooke Shields, there was Judy Turner. You may know her by her stage name, Lana Turner. Discovered at a malt shop in L.A. in her early teens and thrust before the cameras, she seemed to have it all, a thriving film career and the kind of fame and fortune that most people could only dream of. But she was soon physically abused by directors and studio honchos and sexually preyed upon by the matinee idols of the era, including Errol Flynn, Fernando Lamas, and even Ronald Reagan. But that wasn't enough. When Lana began dating mobster Johnny Stampanato, thug for the infamous West Coast mob boss Mickey Cohen, her personal life became violent and unpredictable. Eventually, the physical and emotional abuse became too much to bear, and Lana attempted to break it off with Johnny, with disastrous consequences. Stapanato ended up dead on Lana's bedroom floor with her young daughter Cheryl claiming to have plunged a knife in him in an attempt to protect her mother. The subsequent murder trial made for the biggest headlines of the year, its drama eclipsing every Hollywood movie. New York Times best-selling author Casey Sherman pulls back Tinseltown's velvet curtain to reveal the dark underbelly of celebrity, rife with toxic masculinity and casual violence against women, which took place in Hollywood in the 40s and 50s, long before modern day's Me Too movement. A murder in Hollywood transports us back to the golden age of film, and illuminates one of 20th century's most notorious true crime tales. Return guest Casey Sherman joins me now on Murder Most Foul. Welcome, Casey. Hey, uh, you know, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So, Casey, before we dive into this very interesting uh, Hollywood story, why don't you tell my audience what drew you uh, to cover it? With A Murder in Hollywood, Jim, what I wanted to do was really showcase the rise of Hollywood as an industry and the rise of organized crime in Los Angeles through the lenses of Lana Turner as she was ascending to the throne of Queen of Hollywood and through the lens of Mickey Cohen, a young gangster who ascended to the throne of crime boss of L.A. after the uh, violent rub out of his friend and mentor, um, Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. So not only in these pages are you learning a little bit more about 
Hollywood and Lana story, but you're also reading about these incredibly sensational gangland hits right in the middle of Hollywood in the 1940s and 1950s. Of course, um, in modern time, um, we have uh, Jodie Foster, who um, at the age of 14 was in Taxi Driver, which was started out as an X-rated movie, and they cleaned it up a little bit and it got an R rating. And um, also Brooke Shields, who was 11 when she was filming nude scenes for uh, for Pretty Baby. And before all that, we had Lana Turner. You know, th these were this was commonplace. You know, back in Hollywood. You know, going all the way up. You know, probably through you know uh, you know present day that you know young actors were treated as adults. Lana Turner, she's got the most iconic discovery story in Hollywood history. She is the actor that was sitting on a um, a stool at an ice cream shop when a Hollywood um, talent scout, you know, or or uh, editor of the Hollywood Reporter at the time, uh, Billy Wilkerson walked in, spotted her, saw that she was beautiful. She's 15 years old, but he was sexualizing her, you know, with his own eyes at the time and, um, and basically created her career. Now, once that story was publicized, Jim, thousands of young women from across America all, you know, put together what, whatever they could, bought bus fare or train tickets and went to Hollywood and sat on those same stools you know, for days and months on end, hoping that they would become the next Lana Turner. She was iconic and she had a nickname because of something she wore in a movie. What, what was that, that? Well, they called her the sweater girl. Uh, because at uh, you know 15 years old, she was fitted on set with uh, uh, tight sweaters that uh, accentuated her figure. She was maturing, you know, a lot uh, quicker than other young girls at her age. So um, you know, and she had to learn that she was being sexualized. So her innocence was in fact lost when she was a teenager. Not only on the set, but you know, off the set as well, where she had casting directors and directors and producers that were putting all of, not her, but Judy Garland and, and even Mickey Rooney on, you know, strict diets of amphetamines and cigarettes and chicken broth so that they could work 70 hours per week. You know, we all understand the tragedy that happened with Judy Garland and we look at how she ended her life, but that was a slow, dissension for her because the studios um, had really addicted her to drugs, you know, when she was a, a teenager. And not only did uh, Lana suffer uh, physical abuse at the hands of uh, several directors, uh, most famously, which we'll cover in a, uh, a story a little later, uh, at the hands of Victor Fleming, director Victor Fleming, but she also soon came, you know, victim, um, you know, sexual prey uh, by the by the matinee idols of the time, which, again, in your book, uh, they're just, you know, name upon name. I mean, we have Errol Flynn, we have uh, Artie Shaw, we have uh, Ronald Reagan. Why don't you tell me a little bit about, we all think of Ronald Reagan as governor and then later, uh, you know, uh, the greatest, well, never mind, I won't go there. 
Well, uh, Lana and Ronald Reagan um, basically were represented uh, by the same studio, MGM. And young uh, teenage Lana Turner was used as eye candy to elevate MGM's new leading man, Ronald Dutch Reagan. So imagine, and Ronald Reagan was in his late 20s, if not, you know, early 30s at the time. And here he is squiring around Hollywood, you know, a young teenager of 16 years old. Uh, not only, you know, showing on the red carpet with her, which nobody batted an eye at, but also taking her to bed. And very, you know, and he mentioned that to friends uh, very graphically afterwards that, uh, you know, I think he quoted and said, Lana was as oversexed as I am. So, again, here's a, a girl that lost her innocence um, very early on. And, and to me, that's tragic. You know, I look at, you know, again, that toxic masculinity and how these young women, especially the young women, were preyed on. And Lana never had a chance. And why one of the real reasons I wrote uh, A Murder in Hollywood Jim, is not only to, you know, shed a light on this, but to ultimately give Lana Turner her power back, give Lana Turner her agency. Lana Turner, you know, uh, she was always um, attracted to bad men, and that goes all the way back to the unsolved murder of her own father in San Francisco in the early 1930s. Uh, her father was a gambler and kind of a shyster and uh, wound up, you know, dead basically on the streets of San Francisco. And that uh, murder was never solved. Lana never had a, a strong male figure in her life. And she always gravitated, you know, toward these figures that would psychologically abuse her, sexually abuse her, financially abuse her. And, you know, this is the common theme for Lana for, you know, several decades as she's building a career in Hollywood until she gets involved with the sinister Johnny Stampinato. These men, these very uh, powerful, uh, talented uh, people in Hollywood, you know, preyed on, on Lana. And they did so over and over and over again. And, you know, for those who are going to read a murder in Hollywood, you know, you see what uh, Artie Shaw subjects Lana Turner to, especially after they get married. Now, Lana had multiple marriages. Um, why didn't I guess I just don't say why didn't she just you know sleep with this with these guys in Hollywood? She was under strict morality guidelines that weren't the same for young actors of the day. They could date anybody they wanted. They could take anybody that they wanted to bed. Lana couldn't do that. If she felt uh, feelings for somebody, then she would have to go to the length of marrying this person in order to be with them and then, you know, be subjected to all the psychological and even physical torture that went with it. Now, you, you do mention some of the, and it, again, there's much more in the book, but you did just now to, to my audience, you mentioned, um, abuse, uh, not necessarily just sexual abuse, but abuse that directors and producers and and studios put on young actors. Um, one of the things that just stunned me was the brutality of some of the directors Lana worked with. In your book, you recount a story of mistreatment by Victor Fleming, who was directing Lana and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde with Spencer Tracy and uh, Ingrid Bergman. Um, the director, Fleming, uh, subjected Lana to real brutality 
on the set. Anna could not cry during a scene where it was a pivotal scene in the film. So uh, Fleming had uh, these crystals blown into her eyes to ultimately make her cry. Now, it had been done and it was commonplace in Hollywood in the past, but you know many of the actors, primarily actresses, that this happened to, they would be hospitalized. Um, you know, following a, a, a method or a strategy like this. And, you know, there was a big concern that Lana might even lose her, her eyesight. And the, the, the sad thing was um, the crystals didn't work. And um, so then, of course, Victor Fleming had another solution. He was just going to twist her arm um, behind her back until it almost broke uh, to bring tears flowing. It got so bad that Spencer Tracy walked off the set. Now, if I was Spencer Tracy, I would have walked up to that director and popped him one in the mouth. But um, again, you know, a lot of these actors at the time, you know, just looked the other way while their their uh, co-stars uh, were being, you know, not only sexualized, but physically harmed on the sets of these films. On a, on a more happy note, um, Lana did have uh, have a daughter. Her second marriage to Stephen Crane, who was a budding um, restaurateur and, a, and a, basically a con man, um, uh, resulted in the birth of Lana's only daughter, Cheryl Crane. So not only did Lana had to uh, you know, provide for herself and her mother, Mildred, but now she had somebody to care for, her young daughter. So that led her to um, several, you know, more films, but it also led her to, you know, uh, try to get leverage against the studios by marrying men of wealth, or at least men she thought were wealthy, uh, who could take care of not only herself, but, but her daughter. And one of her husbands was a, a, a young playboy named uh, Robert Topping, uh, Bob, Bob Topping, who was a, a, the heir to a, a tin plate uh fortune, you know, here on the East Coast in Greenwich, Connecticut, New York City. But it turns out that, um, you know, much of the family fortune uh, was was gone by the time Lana uh, came on the scene. So her husband ended up uh, really using her financially and making sure that she was working nonstop on movie after movie to support his lifestyle. You know, the biggest film in Lana Turner's career is a film called A Postman Always Rings Twice. And that was a, a film um, that really elevated her to superstar status in Hollywood. But it also was uh, came at a time where she was aging out in Hollywood because she was, you know, getting into the, her late twenties and early thirties, and we we look at that age now and don't blink an eye to it. But you know, back in the forties and fifties, by the time actresses got to that age, they were only being offered matronly roles. In Hollywood, they weren't the young ingenue that they, you know, had built up a whole audience base for in the past. So, you know, Lana had to really navigate these waters pretty carefully at the time. And she was one of the first, you know, women in Hollywood to start her own production company, uh, which I thought was fascinating. The only other female at the time that was doing so was Lucille Ball uh, with her husband, Desi Arnaz. Desilu Productions. But here is Lana Turner understanding that she's not going to be offered the roles that she once was. So why doesn't she start to produce films that have merit and pass that baton of Starlet down to the next generation, which ultimately was Marilyn Monroe? 
And that's what Lana was doing, you know, in the late 1940s, early 1950s, while trying to support her daughter. And in doing so, was still getting pulled into toxic relationships with very well-known actors, including Fernando Lamas and Lex Barker, who played Tarzan for years on the big screen. And uh, these relationships not only subjected Lana to physical stress and violence, but also subjected her um, young daughter to sexual um, assault. Um, you know, older men, especially Lamas and Barker, who were um, exposing themselves to her. Barker went, uh, you know, several steps further and uh, assaulted um, young Cheryl over uh, a period of years in her life until Lana discovered it and uh, divorced Barker. That story was never um, obviously told in, you know, uh, polite society in the 1950s. But Lana always, I felt, think, felt guilty about, you know, turning her um, attention away from her daughter and allowing these men to prey on her. Well, Casey, I think uh, right about now, I think we should bring in the mob. Crime boss Mickey Cohen had um, survived bombing attempts. He had survived uh, shooting attempts and assassination attempts on his life during the 1940s and early 1950s. He had survived Alcatraz because, like Al Capone, he had failed to pay his federal taxes and get put on the rock. So by the time Mickey is getting out of Alcatraz and migrating back to L.A., he forms a friendship with a young um, playboy named Johnny Stompanato. Johnny Stompanato comes from Illinois. He's a combat veteran from World War II. He's a tough guy, but he's also a hustler. And when Johnny arrives in Hollywood, he starts to prey on young men and women in terms of you know selling his body during the day to uh, the likes of Merv Griffin and Liberace and some of the closeted homosexuals at the time who unfortunately could not, you know, come out of the closet and express, you know, who they loved uh, because of the mores at the time. So they were, you know, forced into, you know, illicit affairs with the likes of Johnny Stampanato. And at night, Johnny Stampanato roamed the streets with Mickey Cohen, always protecting his blind side being someone who was quick with a gun or quick with a knife and somebody that uh, could give as good as he got. But Mickey Cohen wanted to get away from the violent side of organized crime because, you know, he had nine lives and uh, he was on number eight. So they begin to talk a little bit about how to still prey on the Hollywood system. And they did so by creating extortion attempts against some of the most powerful actors and actresses and studio bosses in Hollywood, where they would put these um, public figures into compromising positions and then extract, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars from their victims. And one of their uh, marks was Lana Turner. Now, you know, people over the last 60 years were led to believe that this was a relationship that was built organically uh, between Lana and Johnny. It didn't happen at all. Johnny and Mickey, you know, recognized that Lana was creating her own production company. She was, you know, uh, still a heavyweight in Hollywood. She had a lot of money, 
you know, uh, stowed away. And she was the perfect mark for them. And uh, Mickey starts to bankroll Johnny's seduction of Lana Turner. And uh, Lana Turner doesn't know who Johnny Stampanato is because Johnny Stampanato is calling himself by an alias, Johnny Steele. Now, this is before the Internet, before you could go right onto somebody's social media page and look up their backgrounds and everybody they dated or every place they'd worked. Uh, you know, um, Lana was very isolated um, working in the studio. So she was kind of swept off her feet by this very handsome, rugged, swarthy looking um, guy who uh, just showered her with flowers and um, great meals and her favorite records. He even bought a, a horse for her daughter, Cheryl. Now, Johnny Stampanato didn't have any of that money. That was Mickey, Mickey Cohen providing the funding so that ultimately they could capture that financial windfall from Lana. But as Johnny starts to date Lana and they fall madly in love and it's all pure, you know, you know, animal attraction and sex for them at that time, Johnny's um, method and strategy begins to change a little bit. He does not. He, he no longer wants to extort Lana Turner for Mickey Cohen. What he'd rather do is extort Lana Turner for his own needs because he almost reminds me of uh, John Travolta or, or Chili Palma, you know, the gangster that goes into Hollywood and thinks he can be a big time Hollywood producer. That was Johnny Stampanato's dream. And he called himself a producer while Lana was building this production company and he was optioning books and screenplays and trying to get them made. And Lana realized that, you know, it was about time for this relationship to end. And she tried to do so many times and it always ended badly for Lana because Johnny Stampanato beat the living shit out of this poor young woman, young woman. And um, it culminates in two major events in the book. One where Lana is filming her first movie overseas in London that she's producing. Um, and uh, that movie co-starred a young Sean Connery before Sean Connery was James Bond. And Lana would not allow Johnny Stampanato to travel with her. So Johnny Stampanato gets a false passport, gets a gun, and flies to London. And shows up on the set of Lana Turner and Sean Connery's film and tries to strong arm Lana in front of Bond, James Bond. Well, Sean Connery would, would have none of that. And as um, Stampanato is revealing his gun to Sean Connery, Sean Connery pulls a martial arts move on Johnny Stampanato and punches him uh, square in the jaw and, and beats him up in front of Lana. So that's an amazing uh, episode that I recount in detail in the book. And what it does is it really sends both Lana and Johnny, you know, kind of uh, uh, on different paths. Lana is looking to get away from Johnny and Johnny is looking to stay with Lana at all costs. So as Lana gets back to the States, she feels like the only way to appease Johnny is to um, take him to Acapulco, where she was going to relax after filming her latest film. So she just wants to keep the peace with Johnny during the time she's in Mexico. But when they arrive back in L.A. Uh, before the Oscar ceremony of 1958, she tells reporters at the tarmac in Burbank that, uh, no, Johnny Stampanato is not my boyfriend um, and that she was single. Johnny Stampanato obviously uh, goes through the roof. 
and furthermore realizes that Lana has been nominated for Best Supporting Actress for Peyton Place. And um, Lana was not going to invite Johnny to her uh, Oscar ceremony. Instead, Lana invites her young daughter, Cheryl, and her mother, Mildred. It's one of the most triumphant nights of Lana's life, but she's fearful of what is going to happen once the lights dim on Hollywood Boulevard that night. After the Oscar ceremony, Lana is driven by chauffeured limousine back to her bungalow in Beverly Hills. She enters the bungalow. She puts her young daughter to bed. They've had a great night together as mother and daughter. And she goes into her bedroom, which is darkened at the time. And uh, illuminated in the darkness is a cigarette. And uh, smoking that cigarette is her uh, enraged boyfriend, Johnny Stampanato who um, is demanding of Lana, telling her that she's, he's never going to be treated um, this way again because she did not invite him to the Oscar ceremony. And then for the next several hours, proceeds to beat Lana Turner within an inch of her life. Cheryl can hear the violence coming from the other room and she's debating whether to call police, but she doesn't because she feels like her mother can handle it. Well, her mother, you know, couldn't handle it. After the biggest night of her life, Lana is looking at the mirror the next morning, trying trying to cover up all of the severe bruising on her face. And I think at that moment, she realizes that it's never going to end unless one of them is dead. And what Johnny Stampanato not only threatens her with, threatens her to, you know, her own life, Johnny Stampanato threatens to kill Lana, but for the first time, he threatens to kill her daughter, Cheryl, and her mother, Mildred. And I think at this point, Lana Turner decides to take her life back. And by doing so, Johnny Stampanato ends up dead on her bedroom floor at her rented mansion in Beverly Hills. Now, and at this point, it, it, it becomes a mystery. And because there's, you know, too, too many stories that, that, you know, who did it? Let's take you now to Good Friday, 1958. There's another argument between Lana Turner and Johnny Stampanato because Lana has just met a man who told Lana that Johnny Stampanato wasn't who he claimed to be. Not only was he a gangster, but he was a hustler, but he'd been lying about his age and his occupation for years. Obviously, you know, Lana is shocked, much more so that Johnny Stampanato was younger than Lana, which in the 1950s was, was apparently a big, a big deal. So there's, a, there's an argument, and part of me feels like this argument may have been instigated by Lana because a day before this incident, Lana purchased a knife at a, a cutlery shop in Beverly Hills. And I think she had in her mind the next time an explosion of violence happened, it was going to be the last time. So Johnny Stampanato and Lana, um, there's a fight in the room allegedly, and Johnny Stampanato winds up with a, an eight inch blade um, in his torso. Um, he bleeds out in, in Lana's bedroom. And Lana, um, the first call Lana makes isn't to Beverly Hills police. It's to her lawyer, 
uh, a Hollywood fixer named Jerry Giesler. Now imagine Johnny Cochran and the O.J. Simpson trial. Jerry Giesler was Johnny Cochran of the 1950s. He had represented Charlie Chaplin. He had represented Robert Mitchum. He had represented Errol Flynn. He was the guy you called when you got in trouble. So Giesler was the first person outside of the home to enter the home and sees Johnny Stompanato dead. So for the next hour, things happen inside that bedroom that still can't be explained. Almost the entire bedroom is cleaned up. Um, because Johnny Stampanato lost a lot of blood uh, while he was killed, you didn't see that when you entered the crime scene, when police entered the crime scene. There was very little blood on the floor where Johnny Stampanato's body eventually landed. Um, it looked like the walls of the bedroom had been cleaned. Um, and during that time, you know, I believe that the lawyer made sure that Lana got her story straight. Meaning if Lana committed the murder of Johnny Stampanato, it was impossible for her to take responsibility for it, regardless of the beatings in the past, because Lana Turner would have been uh, charged with first degree murder and she might have been subjected to the death penalty because that was on the books in 1958. Might it be more easily digestible to authorities if not Lana had wielded the knife, but her 14 year old daughter, Cheryl Crane? Jerry Giesler believed that he could make that look like justifiable homicide. And uh, that is the plan that is hatched in the Beverly Hills mansion. And that's, um, you know, all of the actions that uh, follow the murder inside that bedroom become explosive. There is an inquiry where Lana Turner has to testify, and it's really one of the best acting performances in her life. You know, meanwhile, uh, poor Cheryl Crane is sent to juvenile hall and there's a possibility that she will be charged as an adult. But fortunately for her, she isn't. And one of the things that I always go back to that strikes me to this day, Jim, is that the Stampinato family, nobody, including Mickey Cohen, believed uh, Cheryl Crane killed Johnny Stampinato, a combat veteran who had fought through the Pacific, who had killed Japanese you know, enemy soldiers with his bare hands. I was a 13 to 14 year old girl gonna sneak up on him with a knife. It just wouldn't happen. So the Stampinato family files a wrongful death suit against Lana Turner, which she ends up settling. She does not take that to court, does not take that to trial because there is still an open homicide case with regard to the situation. And if evidence was presented in a civil trial that shed light of Lana's guilt in this murder, she could have been charged and convicted of Stompanato's murder. And I think that's why, you know, Lana and Cheryl's secret has remained so, you know, for decades, um, because, you know, there was always a fear that Lana would one day be charged with Johnny Stampanato's murder. But for the readers of The Murder in Hollywood, you know, this, the book ends on a high note for Lana because she does get her life back. And it's there's a scene at the end of the book, and I won't give it away, but it really shows mother and daughter together, you know, in a position of power, a position of power that they hadn't had, you know, for decades. And I always love the fact that Lana outlasted all of her rivals. Johnny Stampanato, you know, was buried back home in Illinois. Uh, Mickey Cohen went to prison again and was beaten nearly to death 
by a man with a pipe and ended up dying a very sad death in, in Hollywood years later. And here is Lana Turner, who maintains her Hollywood career up until the 1980s when she passes away. Now, my listeners might wonder, what was the resolution of the Stompanato murder? And if Cheryl was charged with a crime, the case was dismissed at the inquest level and never proceeded to a full-blown trial, much to the chagrin of Johnny's family. In your book, you characterize Lana's appearance at the inquest as, quote, the performance of her life, unquote. I love that. Um, by the way, is Cheryl still with us? Yeah, and that, uh, you know, Cheryl Crane is still alive. I did attempt to reach out to her for comment. She had written her own book, Detour, which is a very heart-wrenching book about life growing up with Lana. I think most of the information in that book is 100% accurate. I don't think she tells the accurate story about what happened to Johnny Stampanato, and I, I think she did that out of love. I think she did that because she loved her mother and did not want her mother's, either her mother or her mother's memory to be subjected to this. But I, you know, this book flips the script on the story and it doesn't look at Lana Turner as a femme fatale any longer. It, you know, I want to elevate her to the, her proper position as a feminist icon and as really a pioneer uh, of the Me Too movement and how she should be revered by, you know, both actors and actresses in today's world. You know, the Harvey Weinsteins of the world, you know, that, that's, that's, that didn't just happen in a vacuum. You know, there's a, there's a history of it that goes all the way back to Lana Turner's time. But she took matters in her own hand and did so to protect her family and to protect her life. Well, uh, as I say, the, uh, the book is fascinating. Uh, it's called The Murder in Hollywood, subtitled. The Untold Story of Tinseltown's Most Shocking Crime, which, as I said earlier, I do agree. Um, Casey, a question I ask all authors. Does the story of Lana Turner um, have a life after the book? Yes. Yeah, so um, the great Terrence Winter, who uh, created Boardwalk Empire, uh, won a slew of Emmys for um, writing and directing The Sopranos. He was nominated for an Oscar for Wolf of Wall Street. He has optioned the rights to um, this book, and we're currently developing it as a feature film. Uh, Terry was always fascinated by the Mickey Cohen story, didn't really know how to crack it in terms of a real authentic you know, screenplay, but bringing both Lana and Mickey together in this book, I think is going to explode on the screen. And Terry's the perfect partner to bring this to life. Now, so I do recommend, again, people run out and get this book because it's going to be a big movie. And you want to be one of the people say, I read the book and I listened to the podcast. Uh, so, again, the book is available everywhere. Barnes & Noble, uh, uh, Amazon, all that stuff. I like to have people, if they have a brick and mortar bookstore in their town, go there. If you have to pay, pay a couple bucks to get it ordered keep these people in business, my little... Yeah, I'm glad you're saying that, Jim. You know, we got to have to support our independent uh, booksellers. So support your local bookstore. They'll appreciate it. Okay. Well, once again, I want to thank you for your time. Um, it took us a little bit to get this together, but it was well worth it. And I wish you continued success. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Casey Sherman. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate it.
So I'd like to thank you folks for kindly tuning in for another episode of Murder Most Foul. If you liked what you heard, I hope you'll tell your friends. Information about the podcast and an email link that can get a message to me can be found at the podcast's website. The address being www.murdermostfoul, all one word, no caps, no spaces, dot com. So until we meet again, stay safe. And for God's sakes, don't murder anyone.